Because Anne Devlin's journey in 1929 was her second migration to the place that would be her home until her death at 87. On these streets, she had once been five, too. I would learn that in New York, many stories begin somewhere else, for people who become center fielders and for those who start as domestics. Her father, Peter Devlin, went to sea as a youth, became an engineer, traveled as far away as Yokohama and Rangoon, worked for years as an expert in refrigeration for the Great White Fleet in the banana trade with Central America. He was a Belfast Catholic, and at sea he was free of the accumulated bigotries that went with the endless religious quarrels that began in the Irish 17th century. When he married in his thirties and soon fathered two children, Peter Devlin decided that it was time to live again on land. He had seen many places in the world, but he and his wife chose New York. The young family of four settled in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, in the parish of Mary, Star of the Sea, hard by the harbor. There he would work on the ships of the Cunard Line, but live on land with his family. The Devlin children, the other was my uncle Morris, would be raised in a city where nobody cared about their religion. They would grow up in the greatest metropolis in America, where everything was possible if only you worked. Above all, they would grow up free of the iron certainties of the European past, the first requirement for creating an American future. Then in 1916, while the slaughters of the Great War raged in distant Europe, disaster struck in Brooklyn. My grandfather Devlin fell from the deck of a ship and was crushed between hull and dock. My mother was then five and remembered later the tumult and the tears and the flattened red hook, but few of the details. She did remember New York fading into fog and the long voyage home across the vast Atlantic. Her mother must have known that German submarines were prowling the approaches to Ireland and England, but she chose to risk any danger to get back among her own people. One of the few consolations in any life is a sense of the familiar, with all of its imperfections. The widow and her small children made it safely across the Atlantic, but that year Ireland was seething with violence and sectarian hatred. At Easter there had been a nationalist rising in Dublin against the British rulers of Ireland, with deaths and executions. For many people, Irish nationalism was exclusively Catholic. It wasn't. And in the North, all Catholics were accused by some citizens of stabbing England in the back, while the men of Ulster were dying in vast numbers at the Somme. The theory was inaccurate. Many Catholics fought under the British flag. But the fury was real, and so was the fear. The anger had its own justification. After all, the sons of Ulster were filling the graves of France. It was no surprise that the bitterness and its local violence would continue in Northern Ireland long after the Great War finally ended, long after civil war had run its course. Too many Irish corpses would fill the graves of Ireland. Somehow, in the midst of so much turbulence and fear, young Anne Devlin managed to do what few women, and almost no Catholic women, ever did in those years. She finished high school.
That same year, her widowed mother died of a stroke at age 47, and Anne Devlin, now an orphan, decided that it was time to return to the city she had last seen, slipping away into fog. Her brother Morris would stay in Belfast for another thirty years, but my mother would sell the family piano, buy a steamship ticket, and go back to the place where she had last seen her father, long ago, when she was five. My own father, Billy Hamill, was also a child of Belfast. He was twenty when he arrived at Ellis Island to join two older brothers who had already fled the bitterness of the Irish North. He had only completed the eighth grade when he was apprenticed as a stonemason, but he carried other credentials to America. He was a wonderful singer of songs, Irish rebel songs, the songs of English music halls, jaunty tunes of human foolishness, and songs of sad longing. I grew up hearing those songs and can remember many of the lyrics to this day. He was also a wonderful soccer player. Years later, his friends told me about his magical legs, those legs that carried him across playing fields, legs that seemed to have an intelligence of their own. In 1927, his fourth year in America, Billy Hamill was playing for an Irish team in the immigrant soccer leagues that were then common all over New York. There was a Jewish team called House of David, and German teams, English teams, Spanish teams. One wintry Sunday in the year that Babe Ruth hit those 60 home runs, Billy Hamill played in a game against the Germans. He was viciously kicked in the 